Well, good morning, everybody. As with last week, I asked Wole to read the entire chapter just because it's important for us as we go into these texts to get all of the details and the nuance in the story, and you really can't um, leave anything out. So last week, chapter 37, uh, we're going through the, well, let me take a step back. We're going through the book of Genesis. We are growing what it means to fear God, to awe God, to, to respect God, uh, to draw near to God, and that is what these texts were really designed to do. Uh, to grow our respect for and honor for and love for for God. And so we're working through the book of Genesis. We're going to do Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy by the end of next year. Um, So here we are, we're at the beginning, and God is working His plan to bring life back to the world um, through this family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we began chapter 37 last week with the descendants the story of the descendants of Jacob, the story of the sons of Jacob. And so last week we looked at Joseph, and Joseph has been popularized um, in, in a lot of media, movies, books, um, short uh, um, animated films. And so he's popular, and he's kind of the hero of the story, but chapter 37, in, in its introduction to us as one of the excuse me, as one of the sons, um, we know that he's young, we know that he's arrogant, we know that he is favored by his father, we know that he stirs up strife with the rest of his brothers because they're jealous of him, but rather than minimizing uh, the favoritism that his dad shows him, he kind of makes it worse and tells these dreams of how everybody's going to worship him, maybe even the universe worshiping him with the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. And so his brothers are extremely jealous, they're angry, they want to kill him, um, but instead they come up with a plan to sell him to some Ishmaelites so that they could sell him in, in Egypt, but before they have the opportunity to go drag their brother out of the pit, uh, he's, picked up by the, the, he's picked up by the Midianites, and they end up selling him into Egypt, so the brothers actually didn't do the sale, and chapter 37 ends with us knowing um, what happens, but the brothers don't. The father, Jacob, thinks that his favorite son, Joseph, is dead. The brothers have no idea where he's at or why. We as readers know. So Joseph is one of the two prominent brothers introduced to us here at the beginning of the story of the sons of Jacob. Judah is the other one. So chapter 38 is all about Judah. And it ends in a similar place in terms of it seems like things are a real mess. What's going to happen with Judah? What's going to happen with this promised offspring from Genesis chapter 3, this offspring who is to bring life to all of creation, this offspring that the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, was to come through, and for this family to be a family of righteousness and justice, from the two stories that we've read so far about Jacob's kids, they are very far from righteousness and justice. And so we see these two characters, Joseph and Judah, um, and I think that we can see ourselves um, and our lives in these stories. They were victims of other people's sins against them, and they're also experiencing the consequences of their own sin. 
And here we are in the middle of the story. We don't know the outcome, just as we, just as us. We are in the middle of our stories. We don't know all the outcome. We don't know how how we're going to overcome the trials and challenges that are in our lives. Sometimes those trials and challenges have been there for years. Maybe it's family members like, like these people. Family members are in trouble. The future's in trouble. And so we can often ask, where is God? Where is hope? Why aren't things working out for me? Just like we can ask ourselves those questions of these characters. Why aren't things working out for them? This is the family of God. They're supposed to be characterized by righteousness and justice. Everything seems to be opposite. And in our, in our own lives, and in our own challenges, we can get to the point where we start to do what Judah did. See, Judah left his family. We can remove ourselves from situations just like Judah. We leave our family because they're a source of pain. Sometimes we leave the church. And for Judah, him leaving his family was him leaving the purposes of God. We think we're justified in our distancing because of the sins that have been committed against us. We blame God for all of the problems in our lives. The brother, like, like the brothers, I'm sure, blamed their father, blamed God for this plan, and yet their father shows favoritism, and they, God didn't seem to be doing anything about that. But we're going to see, just like we saw in, in Joseph's story last week, that he wasn't completely innocent, and we're never completely innocent as well. Oftentimes we are blind to our own sins and challenges and weaknesses that we bring into the situations that end up leaving us in bad spots. And we're self-deceived about our own righteousness and about the unrighteousness of others. And yet things just seem to get worse as we go down this spiral as distancing ourselves. And we see this in the movies and television programs all the time. Somebody commits a crime, they try to cover it up. There's some discovery of the crime by somebody, and then the person who committed the crime then commits murder or some sort of violent act to hide it, to make sure that it's not going to be found out, but then he's eventually or she's eventually exposed, and everything's worse than when it was at the beginning. We're going to see that in the story of Judah. It seems like that's where Joseph is at as well. And I think we, we can understand times in our own lives where that happens. So let's look here real quick at the, at the story of Judah. So Judah leaves his dysfunctional family. The text says that he went down from his brothers and turned aside. And he befriends an outsider. All right, so like is very common in our time, we, we find ourselves sometimes uh, more able to befriend outsiders than, than we are our own families. So Judah ends up marrying the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. So Judah's first wife is never named in this story. But Judah has three sons through this daughter of Shua, and they find a wife for the oldest. The oldest son is Ur, E-R. The wife's name is Tamar, but Ur dies because he's a wicked man. God takes his life. And so Judah instructs his second son, Onan, to marry Tamar, to have children through her. But Onan is also wicked, and so God takes his life. 
So Judah, fearing for the life of his youngest son and believing that there's some sort of curse on this woman, Tamar, um, promises Tamar that when his third son, Shelah, is of age, he will marry him to her and instructs her to go live in her father's house. So he is no longer taking responsibility at all for this woman who is in his household. He puts the responsibility back on her father. And when Shelah becomes of age, he doesn't marry him to, to Tamar. goes back on his promise. So this is, a, this is called the Leveret Custom. The custom, which will eventually become Mosaic Law, is that younger brothers are supposed to marry the wives of their older brother if the older brother dies and leaves no sons. We're going to explain a little bit more of that later. So, But that's the custom. And it's intended to do a number of things, but the text says here at this point that that the intention is that offspring would come, and so the name of the older brother, who would then carry on the tradition and legacy and, and, and heritage of the family, would go on through the oldest son, which is the tradition. Well, eventually Judah's unnamed wife dies, and he has a, a period of mourning, and he starts hanging out with his friends again. So while he's hanging out with his friends, he sees a woman that appears to be a prostitute, and he sleeps with her. The woman who pretended to be a prostitute is actually his daughter-in-law, Tamar, because she has realized that the third son of Judah, Shelah, um, has come of age, but that Judah has forsaken his promise to her. So Judah sleeps with his unknowingly sleeps with his daughter-in-law, and she becomes pregnant. Judah finds out, and he literally wants to burn her alive. He assumes the responsibility of the head of the household to bring punishment, but he didn't accept the responsibility to fulfill his promise to her. Well, eventually, Tamar reveals that she was pregnant through Judah. And this highlights Judah's injustice. He forsook his promise to her. And so it's at this moment, it's like an aha moment that um, Isaac experienced when he realized that he was deceived by his son Jacob. So Judah sees his unrighteousness and declares that she is more righteous than him. He deserved more than she did to be burned alive. He deserved even a worse punishment. And he sees her as righteous, more righteous than him, because Tamar has fulfilled what he failed to do. So, you know, as the story has gone along through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Jacob's sons, we see that this, that this, this um, concept of, of an offspring, who's going to be born to whom, 
And, and who is going to take the responsibility of leading the family? Who's going to take the responsibility of carrying on this promise that God gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be the carriers of this offspring and to build a family characterized by righteousness and justice? That's the, that's the big question of the text. And so this question of offspring and who's going to carry these responsibilities is paramount to the author, paramount to the text, paramount to us as readers. And so here we see Judah being unfaithful, first of all, to the family and the covenant of promise. He's left them. And now he starts to build another family, but he's not even taking responsibility to ensure that his family is going to carry on any sort of tradition or legacy and fails to follow through on making sure that his own line is preserved, that the, future, that the future generations of his line are preserved. And the person who did it is Tamar. So Tamar has ensured that his legacy will go on, and the legacy of his oldest son will go on through offspring that Tamar has. And there's a brief story at the end. Well, twins are born. Twins are born. And the story is very similar to the story of Esau and Jacob. Remember that story? So Rebekah had twins. And the oldest came out, Esau. But the youngest, Jacob, was grabbing a hold of Esau's foot. And he's a usurper. He's a cheater. He's going to grab from behind and pull back and assert himself that's the idea and so here we see this this son named Perez which means breach all right two two twins in the womb one comes out and to, they tie a rope onto the hand of the one that came out first but he pulls back and the other son Perez comes out and Perez is born first and so here Perez is this overcomer. He'll find a way to get through the obstacles. He makes a breach for himself and goes through it. And so the story leaves us with, with a story that should put us back to, it should in our minds remind us of the story of Jacob and Esau, where, where the one who came out second or looked like they were coming out second is actually the one who emerges as the preeminent. So that's where the story ends. And so we have this, you know, chapter 37 is about Joseph, chapter 38 is about Judah. These are the only two brothers of the 12 that the text is introducing to us. So we as readers are asking, who's the one? Who's the one that's going to carry the offspring? Who's the one that's going to carry the responsibility of the family? Reuben, the oldest, was introduced minimally in chapter 37, and he is completely irresponsible. He slept with one of his father's wives um, and is just brash, um, and he's kind of just not really in the picture. He was brought up, but he's clearly seen by the, shown by the author to not be of strong consideration. So these are the two brothers that are strong in consideration. We have the arrogant uh, young man that seems to spread strife among his brothers, takes advantage of the favoritism that his father shows him, um, and doesn't seem to have any sort of leadership in bringing his family together. That's option one in Joseph. Option two is Judah, who leaves his family, doesn't respect the traditions of marriage and of 
his family legacy and the legacy of his sons, and he sleeps with a woman he believes to be a prostitute, and then he wants finds out that it's his daughter-in-law and that he wants to burn her. But then realizes his mistake and admits that she was more righteous than him. So this is where the story leaves us. Who in this group is righteous and just? Who is going to carry on that responsibility? Because God told Abraham, I have called you to walk before me in wholeheartedness so that you would pass on to future generations my ways of righteousness and justice. So we don't have here any real strong candidate for that job. But we do have a little bit to go on. And the rest of the story, so there's 14 more chapters, and we're going to finish it up next week. So it'll be really a rapid pace through the 14 chapters but we've got a few things to go on here at the end of chapter 38 joseph is heading into egypt his family is behind how is he going to learn the ways of god the ways of walking righteous the ways of walking with justice the ways of being wholehearted before yahweh is joseph going to become an Egyptian? That's the big question. Because he's going to Egypt, he's a young man, he's left his family. How is he going to be traditioned into the ways of God? And then we have Judah. Now Judah recognizes his unrighteousness. He recognizes his unrighteousness. We don't know yet what this is going to to do in the rest of the story. But we're also introduced to two of his sons, one of whom is named Perez, which means creates a breach, which means um, this son is going to be characterized by making a way for himself. So it seems like the text is directing us to Judah. It's where it seems. It's the only one of the two chapters that is going anywhere in terms of offspring. Now, why? Why would the text begin to favor Judah? It's a short bit of the chapter, and it's a short statement that he makes, but it's it's of incredible importance. And it's the first time in the book of Genesis when he says, she is more righteous than I. It's the first time we have a statement by that strong of a statement by a character in Genesis acknowledging their own guilt and responsibility. So what sins and and so he, there's 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 the acknowledgement of his guilt, the acknowledgement of his unrighteousness, but there's also repentance. There's also a change that we see him start to make. So what are the sins? What are the acts of unrighteousness that he committed? Well, first of all, and this will will begin to explain this custom of of marrying younger brothers to the deceased brothers' wives. Well, first of all, he committed an injustice to Tamar. 
She was to be a wife, and she was to bear children. And so he was stealing that right that she had to be a wife and to be a mother. She's just been set aside. So later in the book of Deuteronomy, there's some explanation about this custom because later it becomes law for the nation of Israel. If an older son dies without having sons, the younger brothers are responsible to marry the wife so that the the wife doesn't get married to a stranger because she is married into that household. That's her family now. And to, and to continue to, to protect her and to keep her in the family and to ensure that she will be cared for, her, the younger brothers are supposed to marry her. Now, this is, if this is so different from how we think about marriage. We first think about marriage in terms of romance, in terms of emotional experiences in terms of of infatuation with each other that is not how these people thought about marriage it was part of it and there are old testament texts that affirm that what was foremost into the minds of these of, of biblical people of ancient peoples was keeping the family together was ensuring that children would come from one generation to the next to ensure the line. It protected inheritance. It protected tradition. It passed on a way of life. You can see a little bit of the concern. Um, it's just been kind of a side story in the news that I've just noticed a couple weeks, but because I'm a Harry Potter fan, I've, I've read a little bit on it. So uh, the, the publisher that has published um, the Harry Potter books is Scholastic. Okay, if you... You know, I remember looking at Scholastic magazines as a kid in grade school, all right? So they also published The Hunger Games, so it's this, it's this massive publishing company worth billions of dollars. Well, the father, who's the second generation, all right, in the family, it's a, it's a family-owned company. The father just died in June unexpectedly and, and didn't leave a very clear succession. Uh, succession plan for his business and but he did leave a will um in the will he left the business and all of his personal possessions to a woman he was having an affair with at the company all right and none of the family members the two ex-wives and the sons knew about this all right so now there's this big dispute and feud over who is going to get all of the resources of the business and, and lead the company, right? So the law, there were laws back then. So if you can th- if, you know, think about the sons. Now, I'm a father, and, I have, and I'm starting to think about what I'm going to leave my grandkids. All right, so I'm making decisions. There are things that could happen. If you're not protected by some sort of custom like this, where, you know, perhaps Anna would die. She marries another man. Okay, so then all of the things that I have, because, you know, you fill out your life insurance forms and you, all these kinds of things, everything that I have, if I die, it all goes to Anna, all right? But, but if she then marries another man, 
All right, so he now is going to become a possessor of all of my stuff that I've been building. But then what happens if Anna dies? And then he takes another wife and has kids. You can see where my kids and my grandkids may not have anything that I have worked for. See? So you can, that's, that's how these people thought. What do I need to do to keep my family strong, to keep it growing stronger from one generation to the next? Right, we don't think that way anymore. For us, it's all about the individual, our individual happiness. And so that's, so he was unjust to Tamar. He was unjust to his oldest son. Now, his oldest son was a wicked man, but he still had some responsibilities to him as the head of the household, as the head of this clan. He was going to let his oldest son's name diminish, would not have offspring. He is being unjust to his youngest son because he's teaching his youngest son, Shelah, who's still alive, that, hey, the responsibility to family and clan and tradition and to offspring and to your brother's name and to the name of the family, those really aren't important. And what he's doing here in showing favoritism towards Shelah is that he's committing the same sin that his father committed against him. And in not upholding the brotherly covenants and commitments and responsibilities within the family, he's also committing the same sins that his brothers committed and not living in a way that upholds brotherliness. And he's unjust, he's unjust to the ideas of marriage and to the responsibility of carrying on and passing on their tradition from one family to the next. He is breaking the order. We, you know, and, and so again, we question this idea that the firstborn automatically has the responsibility to, to get the inheritance, to carry on the, the blessing, to take on the responsibility of the long-term success and health and well-being of the family. That's the responsibility of the firstborn. But we've seen, like in Esau's case, where there are times when the firstborn doesn't want that responsibility. So that's why there has these customs. And so what, what, he's breaking the custom. He's breaking the order. Again, these sins were similar to that of his father and that of his brothers, which is why he left his family in the first place. So here he is, leaving the problems of his family and committing the same mistakes. So what happens is that just division and unrighteousness and injustice will continue to spread. These are on top of, these are on top of, these injustices are on top of the sin of, of you know, he wanted to sell his brother. Now, again, he, he might have been trying to just play a democratic or a diplomatic role with all of the rest of his brothers. They wanted to kill him. He's like, okay, how do I save Joseph from this situation? Maybe, but goodness sakes. But he, he, he didn't lead in creating brotherly unity. And he slept with a woman that he thought was a prostitute. 
So the, all of these things are wrapped up in Judah's mind when he says, she is more righteous than I. He is declaring his unrighteousness. That, he's been a, that he has failed in his responsibility to God and to his family, to his fathers, to his brothers, and to his own children and their families. And I say that he repented because the text is very clear with us. He never slept with Tamar again. See, Tamar became his wife. And there are several times throughout the rest of the Old and New Testaments that will report Tamar as Judah's wife. But if he were to sleep with Tamar again, he would be sleeping with the wife of his first son, the wife of his second son, and it would be dishonoring. And we can see that, that you know, in this, in this narrative, Judah takes assertive action to sleep with whom he can. And so for the rest of the life, the rest of his life, Judah is celibate. He doesn't take another wife, and he doesn't sleep with the one that he has. Now, Judah wasn't considering his future when he made this declaration of his unrighteousness. He just said, I am unrighteous. She is more righteous than I. And made the decision to live in an honorable and righteous way towards his family once again. And we'll see as the text plays out, he goes back to his family. He goes back to his dad, and he goes back to his brothers. And we'll see, because the next 14 chapters will unfold, how will Judah's confession and repentance play out? And so the questions that we need to, what we'll be asking as we go through the rest of the chapter is, of the two brothers, because these are the two that have now been held up, of the two brothers, Joseph and Judah, which of the two are going to Honor their fathers. Which of the two are going to try to create brotherly unity? Those are, those are the big questions. Which of the two are going to, to strive to perpetuate the family and the offspring? So, once again, we're here. The rest of the story is to come. We don't know. And again, I like these breaks. And I, I think I mentioned last week, the first time I've preached... I've preached this text a few times, and one time I tried to tell the whole story. It was a 70-minute sermon, so we don't have time for that. But I like the break. I like the break because we are often in places in our own lives, places where we're stuck, places where we are experiencing the consequences of our own sin, experiencing the consequences of people's sins against us and we can do the same type of thing that Judah did in not evaluating ourselves accurately in not listening to the correction that others might bring to us in in failing to live a wholeheartedness before God again this wholeheartedness idea is that we are open and honest before God with who we are, with what we've done, with what we want to do. We are willing to submit ourselves to God 
for his calling upon our lives and are open and honest with him. And I know that sounds like, well, that's just a simple thing, but in your conscience, when when you are faced with, with a decision to make, you know you know in your own mind and in your own thoughts what you want to open up and be open about and you know what you want to keep closed and and when you open something up to god and you and you actually believe that god exists and that he has some hand in your life or could have some hand in your life we all experience that hesitancy. I'm not sure I want to open this up to God or not because I'm not really sure if I want to go in the direction that he wants me to go. And so we fail, even though God, God knows our thoughts in this back and forth, but what it is in our, is in our minds and in our own consciences is this resistance to wholeheartedness. And we don't want to be wholehearted because we're, we're determined to either, one, not be exposed for all of the things that we're responsible to, for, or two, we don't want to be wholehearted because we don't want to divert from the path that we have for our lives. We don't want to open ourselves up to the possibility that God might have a path for us. And so we're, we're, we, we lack this. We don't like our lives. We've gotten ourselves in trouble. People have sinned against us, which has made it even worse. And so what we do is we keep distancing ourselves ourselves like like judah did i'm going to leave my family i'm going to leave my church i'm going to blame god and we distance ourselves from him we even distance ourselves from ourselves i don't want to think about that i don't want to talk about that we all do this right We keep ourselves busy and entertained so that we don't have to sit with where we're at, how we're responsible, and what are we going to do with these people in our lives that have sinned against us. Because those are scary things. Those are scary things. Absolutely. But God has a call on our lives. He's got a call on the lives of every human being. He has called every human being to seek Him, to follow Him, and to obey Him through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what He's called every single human being to. He has called every single human being to walk before Him in wholeheartedness and to pursue righteousness and justice. That's Every human being's calling. And for those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, we have the resources to do this with great boldness and faith because we have the promises of God through Christ that regardless of what we're experiencing in our life, God is going to work it out for good. We were in a house church meeting this week in the South St. Paul house church and, and one of the families just was just sharing trials that they were going through. And there's a quote, it's a Tim Keller, Tim Keller quote, so I'm quoting somebody that quoted Tim Keller, which is almost as good. Um, Tim Keller said, he said, you know, if we knew the good that God was going to do through the suffering that we're experiencing now, 
As much as we hate the suffering, if we knew the good, we would ask God to give us the suffering. Because we see that the good is so much better than where we were at and what we had before. And that's what it means to really believe that promise, that God is actually going to work out everything for the good of those who love him. So he's called every human being to wholeheartedness, to righteousness, and to justice. But for those who know Jesus Christ, we know that we can live wholeheartedly. We know that we can pursue righteousness and justice, knowing that regardless of what circumstances I face, whether they're circumstances that I have brought upon myself or whether they are circumstances that others bring upon me, as me being a victim, regardless of what those circumstances are, the power of the gospel and the blood of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to turn that on its head and to bring about a good, a good so great that we would ask for the suffering again. That's the gospel. And so when God calls us, we're not in a place to make compromises deals okay god i'll follow you if x y and z happens i'll do this if or only you know but no god's call is is for him it's for us to walk before him wholeheartedly and to pursue righteousness and justice that's the call that's the call that's it we can start anew judah's going to start anew and, and, you know, we know that Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah, if you are a reader of your Bible. So we know that eventually the offspring is going to come from Judah. The question before us is, how in the world does Judah go from here to there? So that's what we're going to look at next week. So we can start anew like Judah is going to start anew through Jesus Christ washes our sins away and says i have power over your sins i he washes away the sins of others against us and says i have power over the sins of others you walk with me but we can only do that if we approach this as judah did we've got to acknowledge what we are responsible for and we need the church community all right to help us with that how can, where is the unrighteousness in my life and can you help me become more righteous? Can you help me see where it is that I am sinning against myself and, and sinning against others? And then, repent, that's, and then that's repentance. What do I need to do to live for righteousness and justice? That's, that's what our commitments have to be. No more blaming God. No more blaming the other people in our lives. Take responsibility. God has made these great promises. God has called. So we have to trust in God and His goodness and a wholehearted pursuit of Him. And I would say this, this last thing. You know, Judah, there's, there's only one family at this point pursuing, or that, that God is working through to bring about His purposes and His ways. Judah goes back to it. Now there's the family of God. Now there's the family of God. And, and just as these ideals were important back then for the maintaining of that family, we are all responsible for the building up and the strengthening of this family. The importance is the same. 
the concern is the same. To build ourselves as a strong family so that we are witnesses and testimonies to Jesus Christ and to God and His goodness in this dark world. And so that the next generation to come so this, this should not only elevate us to, to deepen in our pursuit of God, it should also elevate us to deepen in our commitment to the, to the new family of God so that the ways of God could go on. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the, this, really the beautiful text and the questions that it raises in us and the the breathtaking view of of how you have worked god we see your hand in all of these things and it's just incredible and god we look forward to to seeing the rest of the story and we ask god that you'd strengthen us as 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 individuals as households as a church family to pursue you wholeheartedly and to seek to continue to build up your family which is this local church in your son's name we pray amen